Welcome to our evening service. It's good that we can join together online. We're still not uh, gathered physically. We know it's not the same. Uh, but nevertheless, we are one body uh, who intend to worship our King wherever we are. And our first song helps us to worship Jesus as our King. Crown him with many crowns.
We've been singing about crowning Jesus, and we do so because he is our king. And he is the king that was promised in the Old Testament of the Bible. Uh, And one place where we read about this uh, promise of a coming king is in Zechariah chapter 9. So if you have a a Bible with you, uh, please turn uh, to Zechariah chapter 9. And Chris is going to read uh, to us from that chapter from uh, Zechariah 9. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. Uh, Just listen along uh, as Chris reads. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south, and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. This is God's word. Well, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that what we read here about a king who comes righteous and victorious, one that will save his people, we thank you that Jesus is that king. On Remembrance Sunday, we remember those who have lost their lives in wars, but it also reminds us of the failure of human leadership that has resulted in war. Although not the same, we are today living in a world that has many leaders facing many difficulties. We thank you that we know that even in these days, as always, Jesus is King. We thank you that he is the ruler who is in control of all things, who knows all things, who is a compassionate and gracious king, who is a king who rules with justice, who is a king who never makes mistakes, and is the king who saves his people. We know that no ruler in this world is going to be Jesus until Jesus himself comes again, 
But when we see our King in your word, we long for our leaders to rule like you do. And so we take time to pray for our government at this time. Your word teaches us that you have put them in place over us and your word tells us to pray for them. So we pray for our government that you would give them wisdom as they try to navigate this health crisis and as they deal with Brexit and as they have to consider many things that perhaps don't make the news. We pray that they would uphold what is right and what is good and that they would hold back and restrain that which is evil. We ask the same uh, this week for the United States of America having had their elections uh, this past week. We thank you that in our parliament there are MPs who have spoken up for churches uh, concerning the, the precedent that closing churches sets. Uh, And we do pray that this would be a temporary measure and that we would be able to open again in December. We pray that the lockdown uh, would have uh, the effect that is needed. But we pray that our government would be pointed to Jesus most of all. As they make claims to save lives, we pray they would realize that they cannot stop death and will never be able to. May this cause them to consider the greater king who has overcome death. Help your church to point our nation to trust this king. And we pray that many would know the salvation that he brings. We ask these things in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.
possible if you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Uh, This evening we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 22 and it would be uh, helpful if you had your Bibles open uh, to be able to follow along with uh, what we are saying. Matthew chapter 21 and verses 1 to 22. I'm sure that you are aware of uh, the phrase, if I was to say, uh, making a statement. This is when someone acts in such a way uh, as to make a point or give a message, a statement. Some people do this in, in the way that they dress. Their, their dress sense might make a statement about who they are. Uh, but for example, this uh, last week, uh, voters in America uh, have been wearing T-shirts, and that makes a statement. Uh, some people have worn T-shirts that declare their support of Trump and others uh, of Biden. Uh, their clothing makes a statement. Uh, A few years ago, uh, the MP, Jacob Rees-Mogg, joined Twitter. Uh, He's known as an old-fashioned kind of man. And his first tweet was in Latin. I'm not going to read you what the Latin is, but it means times change and we must change with them. So his tweet was making not just a statement uh, in, in Latin that was random, it was a statement about himself. Uh, Sometimes statements have gone down in history. So the image of those American athletes standing with their arms raised and uh, fists clenched when they received their medals in the 1968 Olympics was making a statement that went down uh, in history. Well, Matthew's whole gospel is a statement. Jesus is the promised king who has come to save us from our sins. But up to now, in the gospel, the king himself has often wanted to avoid the limelight that making a statement would bring. Back in Matthew chapter 16, Peter made a statement on behalf of the disciples. He said, You are the Messiah the Son of the living God. That was a statement about Jesus. They'd recognized who he was. But Matthew goes on to tell us that Jesus ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And we regularly read how Jesus did miracles that couldn't help but make a statement about who he was, but then ask the beneficiary of the miracle, to keep quiet about what had happened. But as we move into Matthew chapter 21, we come to the week before the cross and the resurrection. The events where this king saves us from our sins. Up to this point, Jesus had wanted to keep his identity as a Messiah from people because the time had not yet come for him to be declared as king and save his people. It was too early for that statement to be made and the furor that that statement would cause. But now, as he leads up to save his people as their king, 
and he comes into Jerusalem, he is going to make a statement. And in fact, he makes three statements in our passage this evening that proclaim who he is and what he has come to do. These three statements are the donkey, the temple, and the fig tree. And we see them in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 22. So let me read you those words. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They bought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree was withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go, Throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. 
This is God's word. Well, Jesus makes three statements about the kind of king he is and what he has come to do. And the first statement is the donkey. Uh, Transport is uh, often a way of making a statement. Uh, Take, for example, the leader of a country, uh, like the President of the United States. He flies in Air Force One, which has not only a great big uh, seal on there that shows who he is, but on board that plane he has everything he needs to run the country. He can land that plane and then get into Marine One, his own personal presidential helicopter. Or, if he'd prefer, he could get into a car that is called the Beast. An armor-plated car with its own oxygen supply and defense mechanisms. All of these vehicles have the, the stars and stripes on them. And as he comes, wherever he is going, you know who it is that is coming. This is not just transport. They are statements of who this is and of the power of the office. Many of us have cars that make statements about us. Perhaps if you saw the inside of my car, that perhaps would make a statement as well. But as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, his transportation is a purposeful statement. He deliberately chooses to ride in on a donkey. Notice how deliberate this is. He makes this arrangement uh, in a village. So there's some kind of arrangement that goes on so that when the disciples go there, they just have to say the words, the Lord needs them, which releases the donkey and the colt. I don't think that's any kind of miracle uh, there in verse 3. It just appears that there has been an arrangement for the donkey and the colt to be released to those who come and say the Lord needs them. The other reason why this is so deliberate is that Jesus has spent the whole of his ministry, it seems, walking everywhere. He doesn't all of a sudden get tired legs after three years and need something to sit on for the last bit of his journey to Jerusalem. Jesus isn't a bit tired here. He is using a donkey to make a statement. Well, what is the statement? Well, in one sense, the statement is showing his humility. When Roman emperors rode into a city as the king or the emperor, they rode in what was called a triumph. They would ride on a great steed with the spoils of victory following in their trail. It was showing the world, all those who were watching, how great they are. Look at what I've achieved. Look at who I am. Now, a donkey is not a great steed in that sense. But what a donkey is doing, because it is not that great white horse, is showing the humility of this king. But nevertheless, it is showing that Jesus is a king. There is fulfillment here of Old Testament prophecy. 
In fact, through this section of Matthew's Gospel that we have just read, the Old Testament is everywhere. And in the Old Testament, we read that there is a promised king coming. And in Matthew's Gospel, and in this statement in particular, Jesus is saying, I am the king that was promised in the Old Testament. I am God's promised king. Notice this uh, in verse 4 where Matthew writes, this took place, so this donkey arrangement to come into Jerusalem took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. So Jesus did this on purpose to fulfill prophecy. And there are actually two Old Testament verses there in verse 5. The first is the first sentence, say to daughter Zion. Notice that there in verse 5. And this is from Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 11, where God promises a saviour to come to his people, and his people are called daughter Zion. Let me read you that verse. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see your saviour comes. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. So this is a passage promising a saviour to come. That's where this uh, phrase comes from. So when we read, say to daughter Zion, we're to think of a saviour coming. And the rest of the verse is Zechariah uh, chapter 9 and verse 9, which uh, Chris read for us earlier where that prophecy was saying that a coming king would come on a donkey. Uh, so so the, the coming in on the donkey is something that God's king would do, the king who would come to save us. Uh, also, kings David and Solomon, at different points in their lives, rode to Jerusalem sitting on a donkey. So it shouts out this statement, this is what God's king will do. The king who comes to save. Well, in verse 6, uh, the disciples did as Jesus said. They bring the donkey and the colt to Jesus. Why was it that there was <coughs> both a donkey and a colt? Uh, a colt, by the way, uh, is the child of a donkey. Uh, Jesus didn't ride both of them at the same time. Now, Mark, uh, Mark points out that uh, the colt had never been ridden, and so most commentators would agree that uh, the, the donkey was the mother, which would have given assurance to the colt that was being ridden on for the first time. But also, I would say that in the prophecy from Zechariah, both a donkey and a colt are mentioned, and having both there makes the statement all the more explicit that Jesus is this promised king who is coming into Jerusalem. Uh, in verse 7, cloaks were placed on the animal. Uh, this would have been for comfort. And in verse 8, cloaks and branches were placed on the floor in front of Jesus. This again is making a statement. This is how you treat royalty. 
In these days, they would have done this for royalty in the same way that we today would roll out the red carpet. It's making a statement. This is a king, God's king, who has promised to come. It's good to notice here, by the way, that there is both humility, as he rides on the donkey, and audacity. They are combined. The donkey shows the humility, but the whole statement, I am God's king, is an audacious claim, isn't it? He's purposely doing this to show he is God's promised king. So we have seen Jesus as the humble king, but the acclamations of Hosanna in verse 9 build even more about the kind of king Jesus is. These statements of Hosanna, again, they shout out from the Old Testament. So Psalm 118 and verses 25 to 26, we read this, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Hosanna, that word means save us. Lord, save us. And the phrase had become a form of, of praise to God, praising him for his salvation. And so Hosanna to the son of David is calling on God's Messiah, the one who has come in the name of the Lord, to save his people. The crowds are using Old Testament language to lord Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem on the donkey claiming to be king. And of course we know that saving his people is exactly what Jesus does. Just a week later, he dies on a cross and rises again from the dead. So the statement of the donkey is this. Jesus is the humble king who comes to save. Notice in verse 10, though, that the people in Jerusalem were stirred. <clears throat> Literally, the word stirred could be translated quaked. Jesus caused a tremor. It's similar to chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel, where we read when Jesus was born uh, and uh, the, the wise uh, men came to Jerusalem and said, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Jerusalem was disturbed along with King Herod. It's a similar kind of thing going on. Uh, Jesus was not well known in Jerusalem at the time, which is why they ask, who is this? And so he made a stir because people thought, hold on a minute, making this kind of statement can cause a lot of trouble. And as he wasn't well known, they ask, who is this? And the followers say that this is a prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is Jesus, the prophet. Now calling him the prophet is, is not completely wrong. He is a prophet, but neither is it the full truth. What seems to be going on here is the crowd with Jesus many of whom have come up from Galilee, were proud that one of their own is making this claim. Oh, they are hopeful. 
that Jesus will be the Savior. Perhaps he's not going to be the Savior they expect. We know that when he dies. But nevertheless, at this point, they are proud that one of their own from Nazareth in Galilee is making this statement. There is much hope here in Jesus. But it is interesting to note also that Nazareth was a town of humble origins from which came the humble king who comes to save. Now Jesus made this statement 2,000 years ago. But it is a statement that still is true today. He is the humble king. He's the king who leaves heaven and comes to live a humble life on earth and dying in humiliation on the cross to pay for our sins. And he rose again, conquering death, so that we can pray and praise in the way that the people do here. Hosanna to the Son of David. We can pray that God would save us, knowing he is able to, because he has died for our sins and risen from the dead. And I ask you this evening, have you asked God to save you from your sins? He's the only one who can. And if you have asked God to save you, if, if Jesus is your savior, then spend some time this evening. Perhaps you can do this even with your families, praising him with hosannas for his great salvation. Hosanna to the son of David. Well, the arrival into Jerusalem was a statement. But so was the very first thing he does when he enters into the city. In verse 12, notice that we read, Jesus entered the temple courts. And it is in these temple courts that his second statement is made, the statement of the temple. When we read that Jesus entered the temple courts, it is referring to the outer court of the Gentiles. Uh, the temple uh, was a series of layers that in the middle you had the holy place where God was said to dwell, and then there were various layers depending on how close you were allowed to go to the holy place. And the court of the Gentiles was on the outer end of those layers. It was as far out from the holy place as you can go without being outside the temple itself. That in itself was a statement. The foreigners, those who were not Jews, were not welcome into the holy place where God was. But nevertheless, they were able to come and worship, albeit in this outer court. And the selling of animals and changing of money had recently been bought into this outer court of the temple. When people came to the temple, they needed to bring a sacrifice with them. So uh, they, they would bring some kind of animal. But you couldn't always carry the animal with you from where you had come from. And so you had the option of buying an animal at the temple itself. But you could only buy the animal if you had the currency 
of the temple to buy the animal with. And so you would arrive at the temple to buy your animal and you'd have to go first of all to the money table and exchange your money for the temple currency. And then you'd take that temple currency to the place where you could buy your sacrifice and you would spend your temple money buying a sacrifice that you could make to God to worship him. This business was all taking place in this outer court of the Gentiles. And Jesus is very obviously angry at what's going on. His statement shows he's angry. He overturns the tables of those exchanging money, and he overturns the benches of those who were selling doves. Now, doves uh, were used as an animal sacrifice, usually for the poor. Uh, A dove was cheaper to buy than a lamb. And so Jesus was angry here. But it's important to know that the anger of Jesus is not just a petulant outburst. Uh, We've seen statements throughout this gospel that declare loud and clear Jesus is God in the flesh. And God's anger is never petulant but always controlled. In fact, God's anger is always making a statement about what he thinks and feels about sin. So why was Jesus angry here? Well, the reason is given in verse 13. Look at that verse. Jesus said, it is written, that's in the Old Testament, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. This statement is from the Old Testament, uh, two Old Testament verses about temple worship. The first is about what the temple should be, a house of prayer. And it's from Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7. And that prophet Isaiah was looking forward to a time where Jews and foreigners both would worship together in what is called a house of prayer. In other words, people from all over the world would come together and have communion together with God. That was what the temple was supposed to be. But instead, Jesus says it's a den of robbers. Now that phrase is from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 11. And in that chapter, the prophet was speaking about how God's people will be judged because they felt that it was okay to live however you want to live as long as you went to the temple of the Lord. So the temple of the Lord became a place of what they thought was safety. They could live however they wanted, but if they were in the temple, well, they were safe from God's anger. God would be happy with them because they were in the temple of the Lord. And God asks Israel in Jeremiah 7 if if his house had just become a den of robbers. Uh, A den is a safe hideout. And they felt that as long as they were there, it doesn't matter that they were robbers outside, they were safe in their hideout. And the temple in Jesus' day was being used in the same way. The rules and regulations externally might well have been followed but it was all for show. This was shown in the way that they were using the temple. The business going on in the court was a hindrance 
to worship going on there. There was no doubt exploitation going on at the tables. Overpriced exchange rates and high prices for animals. I don't think it's a coincidence that it was the the benches of the doves that were turned over. It was hard for the poor to be able to worship God in this way. And the people uh, leading this, the, the religious leaders, they thought everything was fine because they were in the temple of the Lord. And Jesus is saying, no. I hate religious hypocrisy, his statement says. And I'm going to judge those who indulge in it. That's the statement he's making. He is the angry king who comes to judge and restore. And restoration of the temple is important here. He is the king who is going to make the house of God into that house of prayer for all peoples that was promised in Isaiah. And I think that's the point of verses 14 to 16. In verse 14, the money changers and the dove sellers are out and the blind and the lame are in. They were normally excluded from temple worship, but Jesus heals them here. And another group that was looked down on were children, and and it's the children that were crying out in praise, Hosanna to the Son of David. But notice how the religious leaders responded. Uh, In verse 15, we see that they saw the wonderful things he did. Uh, in Judges chapter 13, we look, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, we saw how the angel of the Lord said that his name was wonderful, which meant beyond understanding. And these um, religious leaders are looking at the things Jesus did and they just don't get it. They look at the statements of the donkey and the temple and they know what Jesus is saying. They get what the statement says, but they think that it is just not credible. But the children get it completely. They understand, as in Matthew's gospel, children so often do, they know Jesus is the son of David. And their praise of God and the statements Jesus is making in Jerusalem, and by the way, the wonderful things he did include those statements, they're indignant. They they can't believe it. And they ask Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? They're not asking if Jesus is deaf. They're asking Jesus to put a stop to this. But rather than stop the children praising, Jesus refers them again to the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 16 quotes Psalm 8, verses 1 and 2. And in this psalm, people praise God when they see his works. Uh, Let me read you verse 2 of the psalm. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Notice here how the praises of children are called for by God to put a silence on the dark powers that are arrayed against God. 
Jesus is saying here that the praise of children show actually that he is God's king. And when they try to stop the children praising God, they are on the side of God's enemies, whom God will judge. Jesus is the angry king who comes to judge and restore. He will judge his enemies, including those religious leaders, and he restores worship aright. Worship of him as king. And he restores us, making us into a people who worship him. As with the the first statement, this one also is true today. Jesus will judge all sin. The Bible teaches that Jesus is coming again as judge. In fact, this is what is said in our statement of faith. The Lord Jesus Christ will return in glory. He He will raise the dead and judge the world in righteousness. The wicked will be sent to eternal punishment and the righteous will be welcomed into, eternal, into, into a life of eternal joy and fellowship with God. God will make all things new and will be glorified forever. This part of our statement of faith basically says the same thing as our statement, or as Jesus' statement. He will judge, he will restore. And if you have his salvation, we know that he is judged for you as he dies on the cross, and you are welcomed into fellowship with him forever. So, so far there's been two statements, the donkey and the temple. One more statement to go, and this statement is a bit of a strange one, the fig tree. Now, the fig tree is a classical Old Testament symbol of Israel's blessing in the promised land. Uh, uh, if, if you were to have a, a picture in the, uh, an Israelite's mind of what is a blessed Israelite, uh, it would be sitting under his own fig tree. It's like a common uh, symbol of Old Testament Israel. And after spending the night in Bethany in verse 17, Jesus gets up to go back to Jerusalem, and as he's going, he is hungry. And in verse 19, he sees a fig tree that had lots of leaves. And this would have been exciting for someone that was hungry because when a fig tree has lots of leaves on it, it is a sign that the fig tree has, uh, f- has figs on it, has lots of, of food. And so it was really disappointing when Jesus turns up at the fig tree itself and finds that there was no fruit there. There was a promise of fruit, but, but no fruit. My wife Paula told me one time of a, of a time when she went to a service station and went to KFC. And when she got there, KFC was open, but they had no chicken. Now, you, you may wonder why they were open, because the promise of being open was that they would have chicken. And a similar kind of thing is going on here, except that uh, my wife did not say to the KFC shop, may you never fry chicken again. But that's effectively what Jesus does here. Notice that. He says, 
may you never bear fruit again. And, and he is angry here. But again, this wasn't anger, anger because he was hungry, or some kind of uncontrolled outburst. This was making a statement, just like when he overturned the tables in the temple. And the statement here is this, that the fig tree representing Israel was showing foliage but no fruit. And it's a symbol of the temple that Jesus was in the day before. It looks good on the outside, but is corrupt underneath. And when he withers the tree, Jesus is showing what he will and what did what he will do and what did happen to the temple itself. It will wither and die. And many years later, uh, the, the temple was destroyed. By the Romans, and that was a judgment actually from God. When he speaks, the tree withers, and he says, That is what I am going to do. But there's more to this statement that Jesus is making because he doesn't only destroy something here, he is teaching a lesson on faith. The disciples in verse 20 are amazed at how this tree withered. The tree withered at the voice of Jesus immediately. And the disciples ask, how? How on earth does this happen? And here is the point. The temple had, had much foliage but no fruit. It was supposed to be a place of faith in God, but was not. And without that faith in God, demonstrated through worship, it produced nothing. And Jesus is saying that if we have faith, and I take that to mean faith in him as king, not how much faith we have, but what we have faith in, faith in him, we also will produce fruit as Christians. And Jesus goes on to explain what this fruit is. In verse 21, Jesus speaks of throwing mountains into the sea. I don't think this is supposed to be uh, literal. Uh, what would be the point, I think, of, of throwing a mountain in, into the sea? He's, he's, he's using a exaggerated language to make a point. The point being that what seems impossible can be done by those whose faith is in Jesus. And that impossible thing, those impossible things, are what Jesus talks about in verse 22. Answered prayer. I don't think we ought to water this down and say that, well, Jesus doesn't actually mean we get whatever we want. I think it's linked to faith. So if our faith is in Jesus, what we want changes. And so what we want is that which is impossible. Impossible without him. Namely, the spreading of his glory through the salvation of souls and through the work of the Spirit in us, making us more like Jesus, which also is to the spreading of his glory. The salvation of souls which includes the, the making of those souls more like Jesus, is impossible. 
but not when we have faith in the Savior of those souls, Jesus Christ. The temple was full of people who looked good, but were faithless and fruitless. The statement of the fig tree is that Jesus is a fruitful king who comes to replant. The fig tree was the faithless temple that withered, but Jesus is replanting a new community of faith in him. A community that trusts him and shows that trust with fruitful prayers and fruitful lives. And I think the lesson there for us is this, that if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we must not be just foliage, but have real fruit. It's easy to want to just look good on the outside only, but Jesus is interested in what is really there. Lives that are just foliage are lives that will wither away and die. And the fruit of the Christian life comes from faith in Jesus, and faith in Jesus is faithfully following his words and his ways. At the very beginning of our time in God's Word this evening, we considered making a statement. Our lives as Christians should be making a statement. Not about ourselves and about how great we are, but making a statement about Jesus. We should, with our words and our very lives, be making statements that Jesus is the humble king who comes to save. That Jesus is the angry king who comes to judge. And that Jesus is the fruitful king who comes to replant. And so may our lives make statements like that. May our lives be a statement that elevates Jesus Christ and shows the world that he is king. Let's do that now as we sing our final song together.
Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Amen.